Good morning. That's it, huh? Good morning. Oh, gosh. Much better. I was so worried. How's my audio? Is it good back there? All right. So my name is Mike Pettengill, and um, my, my job is I'm the West Coast Director for Mission to the World. What's Mission to the World? Mission to the World is the sending, the mission sending arm of the Presbyterian Church in America. And so my wife and I came back from the mission field just, just under two years ago to take this job. And so this is where... This is where all the moms and dads hold their babies tight because my job is to take your babies from you and send them far off around the world so that you can, you can pray for them and that they can impact the Lord's kingdom. Um, but it's, it's not quite that, that abrupt, don't worry. Uh, what I try to do is I, I try to train and raise up new missionaries to prepare them to go around the world. Mission of the World has over 700 missionaries serving in, in over 80 countries. And my job is to get more from the West Coast. Uh, my experience is that my, uh, about 12 years ago uh, this, uh, this month, my wife and my 10-year-old daughter and I left California, and we went to Honduras, where we served as missionaries for eight years. From there, we went to Africa and served in a small country called Equatorial Guinea for two years. And then two years ago, we came, we came back. So um, what, enough about me. If you have any questions about missions, I'd be happy to, to answer them after the service. But let's get to the point of, of why I'm here today, and that's to, to look at Scripture and see what the Lord's heart is when it comes to the world. Um, since I'm in church, I have to, this is the first thing I have to do is acknowledge my, my sin of not, this is not the first time this message has been preached by me. So the, but it is the first time in English this message has been preached by me. The first time I preached this message was almost exactly two months ago, uh, uh, two, I'm sorry, two years ago this week, uh, which was my last Sunday in, in the small country of Equatorial Guinea. Now a good missionary has to know the culture that he's, that he's, that's in front of him, right? And well, the, the church culture in Equatorial Guinea is very different than it is in the United States. And so uh, services, uh, first of all, it's, it's about 95 degrees, 95% humidity all the time. And uh, the only time it's not is when the rain is pouring down on the tin roof and you can't hear anything. And, uh, but the church services last anywhere between three and five hours long. Uh, when, when you do offering, you folks would get up and do a Congo line to come up front and put the offering up front. And um, it's a very... Uh, a very lively service. Even it was a very reformed church, but uh, we were we were the only non-Africans in the church, and and uh, and it was a very African uh, mentality. So when I preached this message, um, I got done preaching the message, and I had preached this message in one hour and seventeen minutes. Now, don't worry. Like I said, a good missionary has to know the culture he's in front of. I know that doesn't fly in, in uh, Southern California, so don't worry. We're not going that long. But to give you a, a, a look at what the culture was like, the pastor, after I preached one hour and 17 minutes, I knew because my wife was in the front row timing me, um, the pastor came up and he said, I would like to, to have Mike and his wife come up and preach as they're leaving um, uh, tomorrow uh, to go back to the United States. And he said... I have enjoyed having Mike here to preach 
Because just like today, he always can say so much in such a short amount of time. And uh, so that's, that's hopefully we'll get uh, a lot in even a shorter amount of time. What we're looking at today comes to us from Acts 1.8. And Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Join me in a quick prayer. Father, thank you so much for your clear text here. Lord, I pray that in the next few minutes that you can use me, uh, uh, your humble uh, servant, a sinner, uh, to bring glory to this text and to bring glory to you. Lord, uh, help me to be diminished so that you can be exalted. In your name we pray. Amen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is not an uncommon uh, verse for uh, a, a, a typical Christian. Uh, we, we, we've heard this verse, but it, it has a lot of prominence in our faith. It, 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 it's a very profound verse. Uh, almost unanimously, most of your theologians and seminary professors would say, hands down, this, ber- this verse is indeed an outline for the entire book of Acts. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's Pentecost. And you, then, uh, then you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is uh, Peter in uh, uh, Acts 1 through 12. And then uh, in, Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that's Paul on his three missions journeys. And then the ends of the earth would be towards Rome at the end, in, towards chapters 21 through 28. So it, it, it's indeed, it's an outline for the book of Acts. Now, other theologians would tell you that this may be one of the most influential verses in in all of the New Testament. At a minimum, it's a definite bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament for the followers of Yahweh, for for the worshipers of the Lord. And, but what I want you to see out of this is three really important things. Um, Number one, it was an absolute shock to the apostles to hear this verse. It was for for Jesus Christ to say this to uh, a a bunch of Jews who were following Jesus, for them to hear this was outlandish. It was countercultural. It was unbelievable. So that's the first thing we're going to park on. The second thing, we're going to talk a little bit about that outline of Acts. And then what I want to do is close with the concept that this is really the launch of global missions for those that follow the Lord. So to get a sense of this verse, you have to really put it in context into, into where it is and what it is. So let's start off with the author of Acts, as you know, is Luke, right? Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts. Some have said, and I don't believe this, but some have said that they were originally one letter. I don't believe that's the case. Um, but at a, at, at, for certain, uh, almost all theologians will tell you that Luke and Acts were intended to be written, or to be read together. They were, they were a, a companion piece, right? And... This verse is kind of the linchpin 
for, for those two, two letters to come together. Let's look at a couple things real quick and, and see what, how we can connect Acts and Luke. So think of, think of Luke and Acts. Everyone's, most of you have seen the Rocky movies, right? Rocky 1, Rocky 2, Rocky 74, or wherever it goes on to. But Rocky 1 and 2, right? So you remember Rocky 1. How does Rocky 1 end? It ends with, with uh, Sylvester Stallone going toe-to-toe with the heavyweight champion of the world, and they go to the final round, and they're, and they're saved by the bell, and no one goes down. It's a split decision, which means it's close, and the heavyweight champion wins. And, but Rocky doesn't care. He's in the middle of the... You remember the scene, Yo, Adrian, right? He's in, the, he's in the middle of the ring declaring his love for his wife, or for his future wife, Adrian. And how does Rocky II start? It starts with literally that same exact footage. They take that footage from the first movie, and, then, and, and that's how the movie starts. And where it continues on is, like every good boxing story should, the, the fighters end up in the hospital, right? It goes from the, from the, uh, from the ring to the hospital. So this is what you have with, with Luke and Axe. Is it, Axe picks up exactly where Luke lets off. And the story is continued. And you can see tidbits of this in just the form of the letter. So you have in Acts, it starts with the words, uh, in Acts 1.1, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus. So who's Theophilus? Theophilus is just the guy who's getting the letter. We don't really know who he is. We think he has to be of, of, of some importance for Luke to have written him two letters. But he says, in the first book, he's talking about the, the book of Luke. Right? In the first book, O Theophilus. Well, in Luke, the Gospel, the beginning of Luke reads as follows with ver- chapter 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. So this is, this is Luke's personal Rocky and Rocky to to Theophilus to give him an outline of what's gone on and so this is this this is the continuation of that story now we're going to talk more about this in a second but just for a moment you've got to trust me in the fact that that a good Jew at the time which which Luke was which which um, which Peter and, uh, and and the apostles were good Jews, and they knew that the laws that had been outlined by their forefathers made it very hard for them to leave Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, what you'll find in, if you look at Scripture, is up to this verse, up to Acts 1.8, everything about the followers of Yahweh is getting to Jerusalem. Right? They, they've got a wander through, they've got to escape Egypt, they've got, to, they've got to wander through the desert, they've got to cross into Jerusalem, they've got to hold Jerusalem, and then once Jerusalem is the capital of Judaism, all good Jews want to get to Jerusalem. So everything is pointing towards getting to Jerusalem. Now at, at Acts 1a, even, even up into the New Testament, right? We're, we're marching from, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we're marching to Jerusalem is what we're doing. Now here in Acts 1.8, 
good followers of Yahweh, good followers of the Lord, turn their back on Jerusalem and, and go out into the world. So everything up to this verse is to Jerusalem, and everything after this verse is away from Jerusalem. It's about getting out into the world. And there's a, a theme in the New Testament that a lot of times we miss, and that is that the Lord did not, did not want His people to leave Jerusalem. He wanted them to stay in the kingdom, in Zion. You, you can see in, uh, when, when the Lord is sending out the twelve in, uh, in Luke 9, 1 through 6, and again in Matthew 10, 5 through 15, what does he do? He tells the twelve, stay here, stay in Jerusalem. This is your, this is, when he sends them out, this is their on-the-job training that, they, that, they, that they're going to go out and they're going to try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with their own culture. But they're to stay in Jerusalem. Acts 1 even starts, it continues with this theme of, of staying in Jerusalem. Acts 1 verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them, Do not depart from Jerusalem. To stay here. Luke 24, 44 through 53 is kind of an echo of what we hear later in Acts 1.8, but it's that same thing of staying in Jerusalem. Christ says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem you are witnesses to these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high the Holy Spirit so that that concept of staying in Jerusalem that's very consistent now let's look a little bit further back now I want to jump back to what may seem like an odd verse an odd passage for this section. I want to jump back to Leviticus 11. I'm not going to tell you there's some great theological or cosmic connection between Leviticus 11, and, uh, which is food law, um, and, and Acts 1.8. There's not. But what we're going to do is I want to use this concept of food, and please don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying this is all about food. Um, my gut tells me most things are about food, but this is not what this passage is. This is not, I'm not trying to say it's all about food. I'm connecting, I'm using food to connect the dots. And we're going to see how the Jews of old looked at food before Acts 1.8 and how they looked at food after Acts 1.8. So Leviticus 11 is the beginning of the holiness section of, of Leviticus. And from Leviticus 11 on for, for uh, uh, six more chapters, it tells us how we are to be holy. So if God is perfect and God is sinless and we are sinners, we can't approach God to worship Him. And so in order to do that, God says, well, you've got to be ceremonially clean before you can approach me, before you can approach the tabernacle. If you want to worship Yahweh, Here's what you have to do. Start with Leviticus 11. 
keep on reading. And for a good Jew, that's where you find, in Leviticus, Leviticus 11 is where you'll find the, good, the, the food laws. What does a good Jew have to do to remain ceremonially clean, to be pure, to approach the Lord? So I'm going to start reading just a little bit here in Leviticus 11, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts of the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud and part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof. I know what you're saying. Now, Mike, please stop reading Levitical law. And don't, I'm, I, I will. I'm stopping now. So, but you, it goes on and on and on. And it tells the types, of, the types of birds you can eat to be a good follower of, of Yahweh and the types of fish you can eat and can't eat. It talks to you about how to prepare your food. It talks to you about what happens if you drop your fork on the, on the floor, how you become ceremonially clean to approach the Lord again. If you have a, 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 a mouse in your rice or a beetle in your water, how do, you, how do you remain ceremonially clean? It goes on and on and on and talks all about the food. The short answer is, one of the things, not the thing, but one of the things this did for the Jews of old was it kept him in Jerusalem? Because think about it. Let's let's imagine let's imagine uh, uh, Burbank is Jerusalem, right? And you want to go visit your cousins in Fresno, right? And there's no uh, there's no bullet train. Well, there's no bullet train today either. But there's no bullet train. There's no planes. There's no cars. You've got to hike there, and and you've got to pack your your clean food, your 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 food that a Jew can eat, because. Those, those pagans in Bakersfield and, 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 and through the Central Valley, we can't trust them uh, to cook the way we need to cook. And literally, if we brush up against one of them, we're unclean. We can't worship the Lord. So we've got to pack everything we need in our backpack to get to, from here to Fresno and back. A couple days' journey. And so you can see throughout the Old Testament, the Lord says, don't don't interact with other cultures, don't intermarry with other cultures. The purpose is to keep Israel clean, to keep them as the city on the hill, as the light on the lampstand, right? Their, their form of evangelism was not what our form of evangelism is today. Um, they weren't supposed to interact with foreigners. How, how they were to reach the world is they would be amazing because God was blessing them. They would be astonishing. They would win wars they had no business of winning. They would, they would survive uh, droughts and, and famine that they had no business of surviving. And, and travelers would be walking through Israel and, and they'd be talking and they'd say, hey, look, there's Jerusalem. What is it about them that makes them so different? How, you know, let's go find out. Let's go into Jerusalem and see. And that was how they, that was their form of outreach. So... When Jesus says to the disciples in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem. Okay, that's fine. And Judea and Samaria, uh, we're not supposed to go there. And to the rest of the world, what are you, nuts? We can't do that. We can't even eat with those people, let alone talk to We can't interact. 
And so this was outlandish to the disciples. This was nuts because they knew from their fathers and their forefathers that good Jews don't interact with the rest of the world. Now let's fast forward ahead, again, looking at food and see how Peter views Acts 1-8, this concept of food. And we're going to look at Acts 10, and I'll paraphrase it for you. But in Acts 10, Peter, who's a good Jew, is at home, and he's waiting for his, his meal to be cooked, and there's a knock at his door. No, I'm sorry. There's not yet a knock at the door. I've, I jumped ahead. Sorry. Peter's waiting for his food, and the Lord gives him a vision. And there's a, a, something like a blanket comes down, and it's all the animals of the world on the blanket. And what does God say? He says, Peter, kill, eat. What's Peter's response? By no means, Lord. In case you're wondering if the Lord ever speaks to you, that's not the right answer ever. But that's Peter's answer. By no means, Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. And he gives him the vision again, a second time. Kill, eat. Gives him a vision a, 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 a third time with the animals on the sheep. Kill, eat. By no means, Lord, nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. In other words, I'm a good Jew. Everybody knows you don't eat this stuff. If I want to worship you, I can't eat that. And God's response is, nothing I have made is unclean. Peter goes, wow, okay. So this is something new. And Peter, who, who everyone, everyone who Peter knows is a good Jew, and all his forefathers are good Jews, and, and Peter's a good Jew, and he knows that you just don't do this. Well, there's a knock at the door. He opens the door, and it's a Gentile. So Peter understands, and you have to understand from Peter's perspective, if this is the doorway and that, and that Gentile walks into Peter's house, Peter's house is unclean. If he sits down at Peter's table, that table is unclean. If he picks up a fork, if Peter shares food with this Gentile, everything about Peter is unclean. He cannot worship the Lord. He invites him in, and he shares the gospel with him. And it's the first time that a non-Jew becomes a follower of Christ. And so Peter now sees, okay, it's time for these food laws to be put aside. So Acts 11, so the, so the Gentile accepts Christ. Acts 11, Peter goes before the, Jew, the, the, the Jewish leaders and they say, Peter, what are you doing? We heard you were eating with a Gentile and you're, you're ceremonially unclean and now you're here with us. And, yeah, yeah, guys, but you gotta, you gotta hear. God gave me this vision of the sheep and the animals and kill and eat and, and he said nothing is unclean. And you know what happened? a Gentile became a follower of Jesus Christ. God gave, God gave us, the Jews, he gave, he gave the followers of Yahweh the ability now to, to do this Acts 1-8 thing. We now can go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have that ability. And so then you, you get into Acts 12 and you start to usher in Paul's, period, Paul's portion of Acts. And that's where he does Acts 12 through 14 is his first missionary journey, and Acts 15 through 18 is his second missionary journey, and 18 through 21 is his third missionary journey. 
and he's going out into the Gentile lands and the pagans. And, and Paul, who used to be a good Jew, is, is now looking at Acts 1.8 and saying, now I, I can. I can do this now. So what is, um, so it, 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 it's, it's nuts for the Jews at the time to hear this. For us today, it doesn't seem that dramatic. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But here's the, here's the thing that's nuts for us today is that you have to see where Acts 1-8 falls in the making of things. What's the foundation of the modern church? The foundation of the modern church is Acts 2 through 7. Acts 2 is Pentecost. And essentially, the, the foundation, if the foundation of the church is Acts 6, 2 through 7, the foundation of where we start to talk about this is here in Acts 1-8. Lord lays out that, the Lord lays out that foundation. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now let's form the church. That's the purpose of the church. And a lot, this is where it becomes, for our culture today, this is where this verse becomes at least as countercultural as it was for the Jews at the time. Because post-Constantine in Rome and, and as, as the church moved west, Christianity, evangelicalism has become uh, a have-it-your-way kind of faith. And, and we, we turn Christianity into what we want it to be. Christianity is very simple. It, it was intended to be spread rapidly and aggressively. What we've turned church into a lot today is what I call navel-gazing. We come to church and we hope that it makes us better. Yeah, that is a part of church. It's called sanctification. Our job is to make each other better Christians, that we become more like Christ through each other, through interacting and fellowship with each other. That's why worship in a, in a, in a local church is, is mandated in Scripture so that we can, we can sharpen each other, iron sharpening iron. We can, we can be better followers of Christ. So indeed, that's a big part of the faith. But the foundation of the church rests on providing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost, whether they are in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or in the ends of the earth. And that's no one's responsibility save us. That's the, the role of the church. So don't worry, this isn't the part where the missionary guy tells you that all good Christians sell everything they own and move to Equatorial Guinea. That's not this part of that message. That actually, you'll never hear that in anything I say. We are not all called to go. But us as a body, this church, New Life Burbank, the Presbyterian Church in America, evangelicals worldwide, we are called together to reach the lost in Jerusalem, the lost in Judea and Samaria, and the lost to the ends of the earth. So while I want to reiterate, this doesn't mean you're called to go to Addis Ababa or, or Botswana. 
We as a body are called to reach the lost in our, in our Jerusalem. We're called to send people from our congregation around the world. We're called to pray for them and financially support them. That's, that's what we as a body do. So what does, real quickly, what does Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth look like to New Life Burbank? So when, you, when you're looking at this verse and it says, well, it's Jerusalem, I don't, what does that mean? Well, Jerusalem, that, Jerusalem is, is, don't think of it as a geography, think of it as a culture that Jerusalem are the people that roughly look like you, roughly sing like you, roughly eat like you. They have the same accent you do. They, they, they wear the same clothes. They, they worship the same sports team or root for the same sports teams. They, they go to the same restaurants. That's your Jerusalem. Culturally, that's your people. Right? That's, that's northern L.A. County. That's, that's us. That's, that's our people. Well, Judea and Samaria, what's that? that? Well, let's call that San Francisco and New Orleans. Slightly different accent. Speak the same language, roughly. May even listen to different music. Follow different sports teams. Eat different cuisine. Dress differently. Well, we're, we're responsible for them as well. We're responsible for our Jerusalem here and Judea and Samaria and we're responsible to the ends of the earth. Now that's where it gets complicated. Because we covet what we know, right? So we know our own language, we know our own culture, we know our own foods, we know our own music. But then when we, when, when, when we go out into the world and we interact other languages, other cultures, other music, that's where it gets uncomfortable. Trust me, nothing, there's nothing normal about being a missionary. Look at it from a Western perspective. What could be more abnormal than being a missionary? When you are relatively functioning and successful in one culture and you say, you know what? I'll go start in a brand new culture for no reason other than I'm obedient to Jesus Christ. I'll learn a language where I sound like a two-year-old even though I have a master's degree. I don't know how to pay the bills. I don't know the proper way to cook food here. I can't understand the music. My neighbors are driving me nuts. So you went from a place where you were, if not successful, functional. We can all function in this culture. There's nothing normal about doing that, going off elsewhere. But we don't do it to advance ourselves, right? Missionary, that's not what a missionary does. Missionary does it simply because they look at something like Acts 1-8 or Matthew 28, 18 through 20 or, or Psalm 67 and they say, this is what God has called the church to do and I'm a part of the church and I want to be a part of this. And when we look at Acts 1-8 and we see, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and, and you say, I don't know I would think, Lord, you would do better sending someone other than me, but I want to simply be obedient. The only superpower I have is saying yes, and that I know that you will take care of the rest. And then that's where we get into the, to really my favorite part of this verse. Having been a missionary for 10 years, the part of this verse I love is that first part. But you will receive power 
that's awesome because I don't have any. Right? And God says, you don't need, I'm not going to send all my uh, NASCAR drivers and Pulitzer Prize winners and Heisman Trophy winners. That's not who I'm sending on the mission field. I'm sending people like we have in Scripture, right? Paul was a, a, a persecutor of Christians. David couldn't keep his hands off his neighbors. Moses was a murderer. And those are our heroes in Scripture, right? That's who God uses. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not who I would choose if, if I was going to impact the world, but God wants to use us. Why? Not because of our great skills, but because we will receive power. God says you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and you're going you're gonna to do it only after you get power, only after you get the ability to do that. I'll give you what you need. And I can tell you, man, there's any of you that, that have ever spoken any other language other than English or spoken a, a second language and tried to speak it to people who speak it all the time, you know that your life revolves around sounding like a moron, right? That's, well, okay, that's what my life sounded like for 10 years, right? I, I would teach seminary and I would just have my students howling, laughing at just my bad, my bad Spanish. And conjugating verbs wrong and, and doing all kinds of great faux pas. Missionaries love to sit around and talk about their language faux pas, all the, all the language problems they've had, right? I've got a bunch of great ones, I'll tell you after service, but but that's not, God doesn't care about that. God says you will receive the power, you'll receive exactly what you need. Well, when do I get that? You'll get that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then and only then are you qualified to go to Jerusalem and share the gospel, to go to Judea and Samaria and share the gospel and go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. But now we have this ability. This, this verse is a bridge for us and for the Jews of old to go out into the world as we're commanded to do. God doesn't use, like I said, the Nobel Peace Prize winners and the NASCAR drivers. Although if you're driving in Latin America, sometimes you do want to be a NASCAR driver, but that's not who God's using. God is using the willing that he prepares with what they need. So our Jerusalem, and when we interact in our Jerusalem, that's, that's our schools, that's our neighbors, that's our family, maybe even people in our own house that don't know the Lord. Our co-workers, the cube next to us. The guy in line at Stater Brothers. The guy that cuts you off on the freeway. We're, that's our Jerusalem. We're sharing the gospel with all of those. And then we're also going around the globe. This is our call. This is our command as a church to go out and, and to do this. But the great thing is, is we win. You've, you've, you've read Revelation, right? We win. Our side wins. We know that the end will come, but only when representatives of all the nations have come before the Lord and bowed a knee. Well, that's what that's what we're waiting for. 
I've heard Christians kind of flippantly say, oh, I can't wait for the second coming. Well, if you can't wait for the second coming, get on an airplane and go reach the unreached because that'll make you go faster. That's our job. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. So my, my prayer for all of us is, is to look at something like this and to see that it is indeed, it's not, it's not a select call for a professional class of servants, pastors or missionaries or evangelists. It's a call for all of us. It's the foundation of our church. It's why our church was, was formed. And, and then ask yourself, when, when's the last time you shared the gospel? When's the last time you were in front of someone who you know and love deeply and you were willing to argue about the Dodgers, but you weren't willing to argue about the Savior of the universe? When's the last time that, that you learned about a missionary that was looking for additional missionaries to serve them? or additional finances to support their work, or having trouble and they needed prayer. And, when, and when's the last time we bowed a knee to that? And so my prayer for all of us is that we have the fortitude, the guts, to say, Lord, it's, it scares the daylights out of me what you might say how you might respond if I pray this prayer. Lord, but I want to avail myself to you. And if you want me to downsize my home or adopt an African baby or, or financially support a missionary or go or send my children or, or, or sell my home and move to another country, Lord, it frightens me to say this because I know that you answer prayers. But if that's what you want, that's what I'm here for. I'm here for your glory. Everything you've given me is for your glory. Lord, I don't want to be comfortable. I want to be a servant. And the Lord uses us like, like a carpenter uses a hammer or like an like NFL quarterback uses a football. And so we don't have to stress about, our, well, I'm not qualified. I don't have that next degree I need or I don't know that language well enough. The Lord's doing the work. Trust me, I've lived it. I've seen it. The Lord can do astonishing things through bumbling believers in Christ. And so my prayer for all of us is that we all say that prayer. And, it, and we know that we have a Lord that answers our prayers, right? And, and it's when he hears that prayer, you've got to imagine he, he smiles and not pats us on the head and says, I know you'll do anything I want you to do. I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe. But it's not a prayer that the Lord can hear. It's a prayer that we can hear. That we say, Lord, here I am. I, I don't know what you want from me, but use me to reach the lost. That's what I want. That's my prayer, not just for you, but for me as well. I, I struggle with it every day. And, and, and I, I want to share the gospel more, and I, I, and, and I want to get more missionaries out on the field, and I want to return to the mission field, and I just don't know when the right time is, or how, or when, or why. But if I just pray, Lord, I don't know what you want, just, just, can, just use me, Lord. Use me for your glory. So that's my prayer for all of us. So, so when you look at Acts 1-8, look at Acts 1-8 and, and understand that it has a context that joins us with 
the believers from thousands of years before Christ and to today, how we can reach the lost and how we can impact the world, not for our benefit, but for the Lord's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Father, I pray um, at this moment for myself and for, for everyone who hears these words, Lord, that, that we avail our hearts to you and our finances to you and our lives to you. Father, I pray that, uh, that we acknowledge that all we have is temporary, but all we have is from you. And all we want to do, Lord, is we want to reach the Jerusalem that you've placed us in and the Judea and the Samaria, and we want to impact the world for the lost that you care so much about. but because you love them. Lord, help us to reach them. Use us to reach them for your glory. In your name we pray.